Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the December 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, with its guest speaker, Giles Brandreth. Mr. Brandreth will already be familiar to our listeners in the United Kingdom, as he is a well-known former politician and celebrity author, as well as being president of the Oscar Wilde Society. His Oscar Wilde murder mystery series of books are widely popular, and his latest book, Jack the Ripper Case Closed, draws upon unpublished papers of journalist George R. Sims for part of its material, Mr. Brandreth being a descendant of Sims. Giles, as you'll soon hear, donated the speaking fee for his talk this evening to the Great Ormond Street Hospital Charity, whose contact information will be available in the show notes. And so without further ado, let's turn it over to Ruby Vitorino at the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing Giles Brandreth. I am triply privileged to introduce to you this evening's speaker. Firstly, because he's someone who has achieved so much in his life. He's a man who has multiple careers as an author, a broadcaster, politician, a wit, and a businessman. Secondly... He agreed to waive his fee to speak to us tonight, nominating Great Ormond Street Hospital as a recipient. And a big thank you again to Pippa J for the raffle and for other people. And for other people, including my mum and dad sitting over there, who have donated money tonight for Great Ormond Street Hospital. The Whitechapel Society has donated money in the past to other charities like the Whitechapel Mission and Children with Leukemia. The last was a favoured charity of Jeremy Beadle, who was our friend and patron, and I believe that Giles was also a friend of Beadle's. Yes, indeed. Yes? Mm -hmm. So this evening is coming full circle. Thirdly... I know that Giles cancelled a previous engagement to talk to us tonight, and so that should show in what esteem he holds the Whitechapel Society. He's going to speak about the Whitechapel murders. He is related to J.R. Sims, and so he has a unique perspective uh, on the Ripper murders. His new book is Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, but let him tell you about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Giles Brandreth. Yay! Thank you, Ruby. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Oh, what a wonderful introduction, Ruby, and what a wonderful outfit you're wearing, and what an amazing evening this is, and to be introduced by Queen Victoria, all one sort of <laughs> fantasies coming true on one night. Uh, I say that, real fantasies, when I saw Pippa in that costume, wow, <laughs> my goodness, I won't go further, because in the current climate, you know where that could end up. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, if, if you're wondering why I am here tonight then already we have something in common. Um, because I'm no great authority 
uh, on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as you will discover. But I will explain to you why I'm interested in them. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. A few corrections to make. The first is that uh, the Frank Richards book was indeed a celebration of the great Frank Richards, the most prolific writer the English language has ever known. He created Billy Bunter, and he wrote the Magnet and the Gem comics for many years, almost single-handedly. And as well as creating Billy Bunter, he created a whole series, a raft of school stories, and they are wonderful. But it was he... Frank Richards, it was one of his many names, his real name was Charles Hamilton, it was he, Frank Richards, who uh, translated Walsing Matilda into Latin. My Latin is not good enough for that. For many years I thought in loco parentis meant my dad's an engine driver. (laughs) I have been fascinated by the Victorian world ever since I was a little boy. My, My father was almost an Edwardian. He was born in 1910, but he was born in June and consequently just missed out by a few weeks on being an Edwardian. But everything Victorian fascinated my parents. I I remember, I suppose, the first time becoming aware of the Victorian world when, as quite a small boy, I was taken to the theatre to see the first play I ever saw that wasn't a pantomime. I don't know how old I was. It was in the 1950s. I must have been only seven or eight years of age. We'd gone to, uh, I think it was Broadstairs, uh, to stay with my uh, Aunt Gertrude. Uh, I call her my Aunt Gertrude, Auntie Gert. Uh, we called her Auntie Gertie. Uh, she wasn't actually a blood relation. She was one of those old family friends you called Auntie. I later discovered she was quite a close personal friend of my father's. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we went, I was taken by my parents, to Broadstairs to stay with Auntie Gertie, And on the Saturday night, we went over to uh, Canterbury. uh, We went by bus to Canterbury because my parents wanted me to see this uh, great uh, English actor called Sir Donald Wolfitt. And he was appearing in a Victorian melodrama in which, I think this was at the Marlowe Theatre, Canterbury, in which he played the role of a cruel Victorian father who at the climax of the drama is murdered stabbed to death by his young son. Now, don't ask me why my parents chose to take me to this lurid (laughs) melodrama when I was only seven or eight years of age, but my mother was very keen on the idea. So uh, off we went to Canterbury to see this drama, and what all I can remember of the evening was this. We sat right at the front, and Sir Donald Wolfett, playing this cruel Victorian father, the climax of the play was downstage, roaring and ranting, and the young actor playing the son, came on to murder his papa and wait for his dagger, and clearly he dropped his dagger. He had left his dagger in the wings. He'd come onto the stage daggerless. Uh, Sir Donald was oblivious of this, simply enjoying the extra time down here, giving this wonderfully fruity performance. <laughs> All this was going on. The young man did not know what to do, because if he didn't dispatch Sir Donald Wolfett, uh, the curtain couldn't fall, and none of us could catch the last bus back home to Broadstairs. Rather dates the story. It reminds us of a time when there was a last bus back home to Broadstairs. Anyway, Sir Donald is downstage roaring and ranting, ranting and roaring, and the young man, knowing he has got to dispatch the great actor, not knowing what else to do, rushed up to Sir Donald Wolfitt and gave him an enormous boot up the backside. (laughs) Sir Donald, clutching his posterior, staggered towards the footlights, and as he expired, dead upon the stage, he muttered, That boot! That boot! Was poisoned. 
Now, I mention that purely to show you that I've been soaked in uh, the melodrama of the Victorian era since I was a very small boy. But my book, teasingly called Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, as a deliberate little tweak in the tale of uh, Patricia Cornwall, about whom we may talk uh, a little bit later when we get to the question time. Uh, my book, Jack the Ripper, uh, its genesis comes many, many years later. Uh, when I began writing a series of novels featuring Oscar Wilde. I have a great enthusiasm for Oscar Wilde. And that has been part of my life, all my life. My father was a lawyer, and he was in the army, and after the Second World War, he was part of something called the Allied Control Commission. And this was a, a group of people, uh, British people, who were uh, plonked down in Germany to establish civil order and law. And my father was one of the lawyers. Uh, a fellow lawyer was a man called H. Montgomery Hyde, who in the year that I was born, 1948, published uh, a book that was the first full account of the trials of Oscar Wilde. So from the year of my birth, we had this book in this house, in our house. And it was one of the first uh, non-fiction books that I ever read. You know, I graduated straight from Billy Bunter to Oscar Wilde. Uh, my analyst says this explains a great deal. <laughs> so I and my family, my father was fascinated by Oscar Wilde. He knew all about the famous trial of Oscar Wilde, which took place in 1895. Those of you who are not familiar with the story, I'm surprised. But essentially, uh, Oscar Wilde, wit raconteur, for a while a happily married man, was uh, arrested and uh, charged with gross indecency and uh, sentenced to prison for two years in 1895. Mostly served at Reading Jail. He then emerged in 1897, went into exile, and he died in 1900, 30th of November, just uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, that's when he died, 30th of November, 1900. So, Oscar Wilde was, for me, a fascinating character. And I went to a boarding school called Beedales in Hampshire, having been brought up in London. My parents came back from Germany. We lived around about Chelsea in London. My father would take me to the Cadogan Hotel, which was the hotel in which Oscar Wilde was arrested. Um, and we lived not far from Tite Street, where Oscar Wilde and his family lived at the time of his arrest. Um, we actually lived in Oakley Street, uh, opposite the house where Lady Wilde, the mother of Oscar Wilde, lived. So Oscar Wilde was much part of the, the culture of my childhood. And I went to this boarding school called Beedales, which is in Hampshire, and because I was keen on the game of Scrabble, at the age of 13, I was sent down to the cottage in the grounds where the founder of the school, a man called John Hayden Badley, lived. And Mr. Badley making conversation with him, asking him about interesting people who'd been at the school. He was the founder of this school, Bedells. And when I met him, Mr. Badley was 98 years of age. Uh, he was 102 when we played our last game of Scrabble. I think the fact that I beat him for the first time in four years is what killed him. Uh, <laughs> I would have liked to have done it earlier, because frankly, I, the man won every single game. This was because he cheated. I know one shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but I do believe... I told him, I said, sir, you are cheating. He said, I said, these words, they, they don't exist. He said, well, they may not be in the dictionary now, but they were when I learned them a century ago. <laughs> he was a delightful old gentleman. And he revealed to me, in one of our early conversations, that uh, the, among the many parents of children at Pedales had been Oscar Wilde and his wife Constance. Their eldest son, Cyril, was a pupil 
at this school where uh, I, many years later, was also a pupil. And he told me about Oscar Wilde. And of course, because I was 13, 14, 15 years of age when this was happening, and he was the founder of the school and the former headmaster, he never talked about the scandal at all. Uh, he simply talked about Oscar Wilde being the wittiest man you can imagine. He said a very interesting thing. He said that the reason people think Oscar Wilde was so witty and loved having conversations with him is that Oscar Wilde was a brilliant listener. Oscar Wilde used to say that listening is the art uh, speaking is the craft, and uh, that there was as much with Oscar Wilde, there was as much given as take. He didn't dominate a conversation. He actually let you feel that you were special too by laughing at your jokes before he made his own. Anyway, he said that Oscar Wilde was the most delightful person, and also he knew uh, Mrs. Wilde, Constance Wilde, and the eldest son who was called Cyril. So I was all my life fascinated by Oscar Wilde. The other fascination of my childhood, uh, he was the real-life one, the fantasy one, was um, Sherlock Holmes. When my parents moved from Kensington away from Chelsea, they moved to Baker Street. And they ended up living in a block of flats called Chilton Court. Many interesting people have lived at Chilton Court, as you will know. Eric Coates, the wonderful composer of the London Suite, lived at Chilton Court. H.G. Wells lived at Chilton Court. Arnold Bennett lived and died at Chilton Court. I lived at Chilton Court uh, in the flat next door to Huey Green. Huey Green lived in the flat next door, yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, if um, opportunity had knocked at a different door, who knows? I might have been Peaches Geldorf's brother. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> This block of flats overlooked Baker Street itself and the old Abbey National Building, which for many years people thought was the address of 221B Baker Street. We all know, you all know, of course, that uh, if there was such an address, it would have been much more towards the Oxford Street end. Uh, but never mind. Uh, as a child, looking out of the window, uh, of course, like so many of us, I fell in love with the Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes stories uh, when I was about 11, 12, 13, and they've still... You know, they make you feel good. They're, they're just wonderful. And so Sherlock Holmes was my other childhood fascination. We now move on a number of years. And I find myself uh, a member of Parliament in the library of the House of Commons. And the library of the House of Commons is one of the most attractive series of rooms in Europe. I don't know if any of you have been members of Parliament. If you have been, my sympathies. Uh, <laughs> but it's worth becoming a member of Parliament to gain access to the library. It overlooks the River Thames. It is your fantasy library. It's wonderful oak shelves, a most remarkable collection of books, some of them dating back to the 18th, and indeed in a few cases, the 17th century. Uh, but it's a, a glorious Victorian library. Uh, and most of the books are related to politics, but there is one final room, known as the quiet room at the end, where uh, I used to go and sit, which has got lots of uh, literary material in it. It's got fiction, but it's got lots of biography. And I was there one night in the days when I was an MP, they still had all-night sittings, and uh, you would go and you'd... I found myself reading the autobiography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, one of my literary heroes. And I came across, at around page, I say around page, on page 63, I came across the account that he gives of meeting Oscar Wilde. I thought, my goodness, how extraordinary. My other great literary hero is Oscar Wilde, but he knew Arthur Conan Doyle. 
what an unlikely combination of people. How on earth did they know one another? Anyway, I read on. And this book was written in the 1920s. 1926, I think, Arthur Conan Doyle's autobiography, towards the end of his life. And what is interesting is that he wrote about Oscar Wilde at all. Because the scandal of Oscar Wilde's imprisonment of 1895 was so great that he became somebody nobody talked about. His plays went on running for a short while, but with his name taken off the posters. Uh, his children, for example, to show how great the scandal was, were sent to separate schools so they couldn't, and had their names changed, so they couldn't be overheard talking to each other and revealing who their father might be. They were allowed to keep copies of their father's books that he had given to his own children, but the name of the author was cut out of those books. So it was a really considerable scandal. Uh, if you check at Somerset House, no English-born child between 1895 and the outbreak of the Second World War in this country, not one was given the first Christian name of Oscar. It really was something horrific. Well, if you imagine how people would view a uh, celebrity pedophile today, that is the kind of uh, opprobrium that Oscar Wilde faced in 1895. Uh, people who he had known, uh, for example, we're going to talk about a little in a moment, Walter Sickert, the Victorian artist, uh, Walter Sickert's family had been very friendly with Oscar Wilde and his family, but when Walter Sickert and other members of his family saw Oscar Wilde in Dieppe after his release from prison, although they had stayed on holiday together, the Sicketts and the Wilds, uh, the Sickert family cut him, ignored him, pretended they didn't see him. So the scandal was very great indeed. So interesting that in 1926, um, Arthur Condor chose to write about meeting Oscar Wilde. They met at the Langham Hotel, now opposite the BBC, then quite a new and very swanky hotel. They met there at the invitation of an American publisher who was producing a, a magazine and was uh, looking for writers to write stories for his magazine. And this was in 1888, in the aftermath of, or the height of, the Whitechapel murders, already by then known as, at the time of this uh, uh, encounter, already known as the Jack the Ripper murders in some quarters, but the Whitechapel murders. And what this American publisher was looking for, a man by the name of Stoddart, he was looking for young writers to write him murder mysteries set in England, because murder had suddenly become rather a, a current element, and he thought this would, um, you know, help the sales of his magazine. And so a dinner took place at the Langham Hotel, and at this dinner were Oscar Wilde, Arthur Conan Doyle, in fact, also a member of Parliament, and Mr. Stoddart. And he commissioned works from the two writers. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, as a result of this dinner, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the second of his Sherlock Holmes stories. There might have been no other Sherlock Holmes stories had it not been for this monumental dinner. And uh, it became, he wrote The Sign of Four. And Oscar Wilde was persuaded to write a murder story too, a rather unusual one, The Picture of Dorian Gray. This dinner resulted in those two famous works. And I'm proud to say, uh, as a result of my endeavours, or rather my enthusiasm, the endeavours were taken by other people, I was able to unveil a plaque not that long ago outside the Langham Hotel commemorating this uh, celebrated dinner. Now, in his account of this evening, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle talks about uh, what a remarkable person Oscar Wilde was. 
he speaks of him as being the most delightful person to meet. So brilliant, so witty and so wise, and also talked about it as a golden, a golden evening. It was clear that it was one of the great evenings of his life, and that the conversation of this man was truly memorable. He also later tells us that when he met him again a few years later, the man had changed, that there was a kind of mania in him, that he couldn't stop talking at a later time, that, that the delicacy that he'd known when he first met him in 1888 seemed to have gone by 1893. Anyway, I, reading this account, thought, now this is extraordinary. These two men met one another, knew one another. What an unlikely combination, because, as you will know, Oscar Wilde was this aesthetic figure. He was very tall, well over six foot, well-fleshed. Uh, he, well, uh, he walked down Piccadilly with a poppy or a lily. Anyway, he was the kind of character that you picture Oscar Wilde being. Uh, by contrast, you have Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a, uh, a younger person, but he was sort of more butch, more heroic, more heavy-shouldered, a very different type uh, of person. That they should get on seemed to me curious, but that they did was a fact. And it gave me the idea, oh, why don't I make these characters and write some Victorian murder mysteries myself? So I wrote a series of six Victorian murder mysteries, starting with one called Oscar and the Candlelight Murders, based around the friendship between Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle, and uh, it, it covered, oh, it covered, the whole series covers about 20 years of their different lives. It, it's, if you're interested in Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle, and you like murder mysteries, you may enjoy these books. And they were very successful, and all that. And I finished them. I finished the six books. And then I chanced to discover by chance, two things. I chanced to discover that uh, Oscar Wilde lived in, I knew he lived in Tite Street, but I didn't know who all his neighbours were. I knew who some of his neighbours were. Curiously, one of his neighbours was the judge, Judge Wills, who um, actually presided over his trial. He knew the judge who, was, uh, who sent him down for two years. Uh, but I also discovered that only a few doors down from him was Melville McNaughton. Now, you are all more familiar with this uh, area than I am. And now I come to talk to you in a moment about Jack the Ripper. What I want you to bear in mind is that the strength of my position is what may be viewed by Ripperologists as the weakness of my position. The strength of my position is I came to this subject knowing nothing about Jack the Ripper beyond the name Jack the Ripper. So I came as a total innocent, interested in Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle. But when I discovered, just digging around Oscar Wilde, that he knew, living a few doors down, Melville McNaughton, I thought, well, this is interesting because this man, Melville McNaughton, uh, is, as you will know, in about 1890, he's appointed as the head of the CID. I think he's called Chief Constable of the CID, though he was not a career policeman. He had been somebody who had actually been overseas, but he came back looking for something to do, and was considered the right sort of chap to take on this role. He was uh, in charge of the CID, and he was charged with producing a report, uh, actually detailing uh, what was known at that stage about the so-called Whitechapel murders. And this made me think, oh, well, this is quite interesting. didn't know that Oscar Wilde knew this man who was writing this report on 
the Whitechapel murders. Mm. Uh, I, I knew that Oscar Wilde's associates, some of them, had been named as possible suspects, uh, but that really isn't so surprising. Amongst the many hundreds of names, almost anybody of any notoriety at the time uh, was named. So I, I was intrigued by that. And then, of course, talking about it with members of the family, one of my relatives reminded me of that we are, my family is closely um, tied to the family of George R. Sims. My maternal grandmother's first cousin was George R. Sims. You will all know this, but I will repeat it briefly for the one or two who may not be sure of who he is. George R. Sims was a hugely successful Victorian writer, journalist, man about town. Uh, George Robert Sims was tall himself, had a beard. He uh, was a curious mixture. And he was, in a way, a sort of pioneer celebrity journalist. Uh, today, he would be a sort of figure appearing on television, I imagine. But in the 1880s onwards, he had a newspaper column, a magazine column, that appeared every week. Uh, a mustard, it was called Mustard and Cress. Indeed, he, he wrote it prolifically, even on days when the papers weren't published because it was Christmas or something, he still wrote the column. He couldn't stop himself. He was very, very successful, indeed hugely successful. He was paid in uh, 1899, I think, from the records of the family, wait for this, £150,000 in those days' money. So this was a hugely successful man. He uh, spent most of his money on the horses. He owned horses. He gambled a lot of it away. He had a beautiful house in Regent's Park. He had two wives. He uh, was a celebrity in the sense that he was used in advertising. Uh, Oscar Wilde, as you may know, was used in advertising, but not with his permission. They just took his name and uh, produced products. George R. Sims sold his name very successfully. Uh, We have at home, my wife gave me some for Christmas a couple of years ago. He created uh, an unguent that cures baldness. Uh, I don't know how effective (laughs) it has been, but she very sweetly uh, gave me a, a, a bottle of this. It was called Tacho. Tacho being a rearrangement of the letters in the name of his publisher, Chatto. He took Chatto, rearranged it to Tacho, and produced this uh, cure for baldness, which he said was absolutely infallible. If it didn't work for you, it's because you're not taking it properly. Um, Anyway, fascinating and delightful character. He also, uh, he wrote a a, a marvellous book in the tradition of uh, the London Poor, the, the Mayhew book, London Life of the London Poor, he followed on. He, he's a kind of successor to Mayhew and Dickens and was taken quite as seriously, well, almost as seriously as them, in terms of his understanding of the problems of uh, poverty in London and the life of the East End. That was the serious side of him. The lighter side of him was that he wrote, uh, co-wrote a lot of the Drury Lane pantomimes. And he was famous for knowing Everybody. George R. Sims knew everybody, and he wanted to be there. He didn't actually have any children. He had several wives, um, but he knew everybody, and everybody liked him. And uh, he liked to feel that he did know everybody. Uh, And he liked to say that he was the first person to discover who Jack the Ripper really was. This is because he uh, did know McNaughton, and uh, uh, McNaughton revealed to him what uh, the police's thinking was, and uh, that enabled him to say, I believe I know who Jack the Ripper is. Uh, 
he left some papers. Um, he had a niece um, called Araminta Lamb, rather nice, uh, nicknamed Minty Lamb. Uh, <laughs> and he left his papers to Minty Lamb. They are now um, at the University of Manchester Library, if you wish to consult them. But we do have in our family George R. Sims' papers. So I thought to myself, well, I've got Oscar Wilde living in the street. I've got access to family material about from George R. Sims, who was actually there at the time. Let me posit that Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle are going to be put on the trail of Jack the Ripper and see where it leads me. And the advantage of this was where it led me was where some other people haven't been before, simply because I walked through a door into an empty room. If you are a ripperologist, you've got this whole baggage. You think you know it all. If you know nothing, you can simply be led where the trail takes you. And uh, so I believe, uh, when you finish my book, I'm sure you'll be convinced as well, I believe I've solved it all. Um, (laughs) Of course, I appreciate I'm not alone in this, and everybody thinks they have solved it all. The one person we know who hasn't is poor old Patricia Cornwall, um, uh, who I must say I did meet some years ago before I, I knew the sort of person she I knew, I knew, knew as much about as I know now, and I rather naively spent a lot of time flirting with her, feeling, why am I getting nowhere with this? Um, anyway, uh, she, was, she was very, very nice. Um, I must say, she apologized for being a bit late. She said, it's been, oh, I had a hell of a time. Uh, Heathrow, it's absolute chaos today. I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, what airline? She said, what do you mean, what airline? I said, what airline did you fly over on? She said, I flew in my own jet. Um, so there we are. So uh, she's hugely, hugely successful, and probably more so than George R. Sims. Um, so what I want to do now briefly, before I invite you to, as it were, ask your questions and take me in the right direction, is simply introduce you to some of the characters that I met along the way so that you can begin to understand what all this is about and why I've come to it the way I have. I think the first thing that I I quickly realized, I I began to think, first of all, to myself, why, why are these Whitechapel murders so famous? And I thought to myself quite quickly, they're only so famous because... Uh, they're called the Jack the Ripper murders. It's the name. I thought this name is what's going to... Because if you look at the history of murder, there are lots of serial killers. Uh, why is this one standing out from the crowd? And I thought, well, maybe it's the word Jack. Maybe it's as in Jack O'Lantern, uh, Jack Golightly, uh, Jack Flash, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack the Giant Killer. There's something about the ring of Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, say it again, say it loud. So I came out of Tower Hill Tube Station this evening. There was a fellow setting off on a walk, and he was telling us, join me, join Jack the Ripper. That's what we're going to hunt tonight, Jack the Ripper. The very name, I thought, that resonates. That would have intrigued Wild. Why is this fellow called Jack the Ripper? And uh, so I thought I'll, I'll begin there. I'll begin exploring that. And that wasn't... That difficult. I mean, again, you and people know all the answers. Uh, But I didn't at that stage. But I just thought, Jack the Ripper, where does that name come from? 
we know whoever is perpetrating these murders is not likely to be called Jack. Why would they call themselves Jack the Ripper? Uh, we know that there was a postcard and a letter uh, sent to a, a press agency naming, you know, signed or uh, including the name Jack the Ripper. We know that's how it got currency. Before that, the character in the open papers was known as Leather Apron, as you know. But Leather Apron, I can tell you this. Leather Apron, had they committed three, six, 13, 27 murders, we would not be talking about Leather Apron tonight. Leather Apron is not a sexy name. Leather Apron has no... There would not be Whitechapel walks happening. No one was going to be staying outside. Join me on the Leather Apron tour tonight. It would not be happening. It's the name Jack the Ripper that does it. And I quickly realized two things. I must find out who came up with his name because they had something special going for them. And two, I must remember what the police were like at the time, what we all are like at the time. We followed this great name, Jack the Ripper. That's what's got our juices going. And the police are not going to be any different from us. They're going to find that quite exciting. Let's find Jack the Ripper. And once you start looking for Jack the Ripper, you're looking for a certain type of person. You're looking for an individual for a start. It's called Jack the Ripper. Let's find Jack the Ripper. So that's what we're looking for. I know people can say, well, it could be Jill the Ripper, but no, it's Jack you're looking for. It's one individual called Jack the Ripper. And I thought, maybe that's a distraction. Maybe forget that it's Jack the Ripper. So I began to look into who came up with this name, and, and, and like this would be obvious to all of you because you're brilliant. Um, uh, it became clear to me straight away uh, that it's not going to be... It's, 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 who would send these post, this postcard and the letter to a press agency? If you are an ordinary murderer, as it were, you're going to send it to a newspaper, if you want coverage, or you're going to send it to the police. You are certainly not going to send it to the third in, in rank at the time news agency of the day. Uh, that's really the last place you're going to send it to. Uh, but if you are a journalist in the world of George R. Sims, you might well be thinking, oh, actually, let's get this quickly into the, get some coverage quickly. We do it through a press agency. So I thought I will focus on journalists. And so through, as it were, because I was looking at it through the eyes of Oscar Wilde and George R. Sims, I quickly got myself down the route of finding out who came up with the name of Jack the Ripper. That's a sort of sidebar in, in the book. Uh, then I thought, well, let me begin to work all this out. And I, I, the, the real thing I, I realize is that the Boer police, um, they obviously, obviously not a lot has changed if you read today's newspapers. They're not always, as it were, as sharp as we would hope they would be. And certainly, I mean, I loved it when uh, Oscar Wilde discovered, as you all know, that the police constable uh, charged with taking a lot of the statements and doing a lot of the legwork at the time gloried in the name of P.C. Thick. Uh, T-H-I-C-K, um, and he, I think he ended up as Sergeant Thick, so he did so well. But that's the sort of thing that would have amused Oscar Wilde, who loved names. No men est omen, the great saying, the name is all, certainly applies to Oscar Wilde. He, I don't think he would have been, I think he knew it himself. He wouldn't have been as he was if he hadn't been called Wilde. Wilde by name, Wilde by nature. P.C. Thick, Thick by name, and, well, there we are. Um, he, 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 oh, I know, I know. We mustn't speak ill of the dead, and I'm sure he meant well. Um, but it, he didn't, it didn't inspire faith. It didn't inspire confidence in me. Though it's interesting that he did at least have T-H-I-C-K, five letters in his name. Oscar Wilde was a great believer in the five-letter philosophy. All the great figures in the history of the world have five letters in their name. 
uh, Oscar's blessed because he's called Oscar and Wild, two five-letter names. Thick, well, there he is with five letters, but it, it really does work. You would think, you know, Jesus, Plato, Oscar Wilde went to New York and Mr. Barnum introduced him to the elephant and he said, what's he called? Jumbo. There you are. If you've, if you've got five letters in your name, you may, you stand a chance of, of living among the immortals. And it's only people with five letters in their name that tend to get be called and known by their first name. If I say to you, Scylla, you know who I'm talking about. If I say to you, Boris, you even know who I'm talking about. It's interesting how, how it works. Oscar Wilde used to say, 100 years from now, my enemies will call me Wilde and my friends will call me Oscar. So, uh, I thought, let me discount the police. Let me just push them to one side. And let me just begin on the journey. And because I was writing a novel, this is a novel. It's just my view. I mean, the fact is, in the novel, I get it right, but that's an incidental. Uh, I'm just going to quickly rattle through some of these characters, and then it'll be a chance for you to sort of take me in the direction you want me to go. Uh, Oscar and Arthur are my main characters. Uh, they are based at the Langham Hotel, where there's a, a, a bellboy called Jimmy, and there's a waiter called Martin. Uh, Melville McNaughton lives down the road from Oscar Wilde in Tite Street. Also featuring in the story are Constance Wilde, who, are, who is the wife of Oscar Wilde and a, uh, a brilliant person in her own right and a very nice, nice person, I think, too. Uh, William Wilde is the brother of Oscar Wilde. He is a journalist. He unfortunately drinks too much. Uh, he wasn't always very kind to uh, Oscar. Uh, he used to say after Oscar's arrest, you know, uh, Oscar, he actually, uh, he's a perfect gentleman. You can trust him with a lady anywhere. Mm. Uh, <laughs> William Wilde, you couldn't trust with a lady. He had um, several marriages, and this time he's engaged to somebody called Lily Lees, who's an American. Then I get into, as it were, the different characters who are amongst those who may be suspects or not. Uh, and these are people you may be familiar with. Uh, Mina Mathers, the, who's a, an artist, and also uh, she is somebody who um, uh, tells fortunes. Um, the, the, the Russian circus, Ivan Zaraskin, uh, was an interesting figure. The Russian circus was performing at um, Olympia uh, at that time. Um, there's a girl called Olga Ivanov. One or two of these characters are invented, um, and I felt I needed a, a pretty girl who was an acrobat, so she goes in there. Tom Norman, you will all be familiar with, uh, who had the shop uh, opposite the hospital. Um, there, Stella Stride is the sister of Lizzie Stride. She is a, a real person. Uh, Lizzie Stride, as you know, is one of the unfortunate uh, prostitutes whose body was found, I think, on the 30th of September, uh, 1888. Um, Henry Labouchere is in here. Henry Labouchere is an interesting and important figure. Henry Labouchere was a member of parliament known as Labby. Uh, it was Henry Labouchere who introduced the legislation uh, known as the Labouchere Amendment that, uh, under which Oscar Wilde was found guilty of gross indecency. Henry Labouchere's amendment um, criminalized uh, homosexual acts uh, of the kind for which Oscar Wilde was found guilty. It, all, it was also the same piece of legislation um, was to raise the age of consent uh, for girls and it was to outlaw brothels. Uh, people, when he proposed this, thought this is pretty laughable, that Labby, as he was known, would want to be doing this given he was a noted um, user of the brothel, a habitué of the brothel. And yet, I mean, 
What kind of hypocrisy is that for a member of parliament? Fortunately, we don't get that sort of thing nowadays. Um, <laughs> but he actually introduced legislation outlawing the brothel. And he'd been famous for it since he was a young man. I mean, when he was at university, he was at Cambridge University, Henry Labouchere, one evening he was found walking down Silver Street with uh, a uh, lady of the night, lady of the town, on his arm. And the proctors, the university police, were, had, there were strict rules that the undergraduates were not to consort with prostitutes. And the proctors accosted uh, him and said, uh, who, who is this, Mr. Labouchere? Who is this that you're with? Who is this? And uh, he said, well, this is, this is my sister, uh, Proctor. This is my sister. And uh, the proctor said, this is your sister. This is one of the most notorious tarts in Cambridge. And Labouchere replied, well, of course... I know that, and Mother and I are very worried about it. <laughs> but Labouchere is a central figure to this. And um, one of the interesting things that I discovered by going where I went, because I then, obviously, after I'd been going on this journey, I then became a bit of an amateur ripperologist and began reading other people's books. And I was interested that many of the characters that I had found intriguing, like Labouchere, he only appears tangentially in some of these books. In fact, he, as it turns out, was pretty central to the government's concern at the time about the murders being uh, resolved. Uh, but because he was just a member of parliament and didn't seem to be actively in this part of the world, uh, he was ignored. But I think he is quite interesting. The Marquis of Queensbury is in there. He is the father of uh, Oscar Wilde's friend at the time, uh, Lord Alfred Douglas Bosey. George R. Sims is here. Alex Shand is here. Uh, he is a really fascinating character from this period. I mean, you are all Victorian specialists, so you know about Alex Shand. What is intriguing about uh, Alex Shand is he is the great-great-grandfather of uh, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, um, Swedish Princess uh, of Wales. Uh, this man, Alex Shand, in my story, is a real person, the great-great-grandfather of Camilla. And intriguingly, Alec Shand was uh, secretly engaged to Constance, the lady who married Oscar Wilde. So that would have changed the story of our royal family, wouldn't it? If she ended up marrying... Anyway, uh, that's by the by. But he is very relevant to this and provides one of the, the clues... Uh, J.M. Barry is here, Bram Stoker is here, you know all about these people. Bram Stoker, of course, is here because he, at the time, uh, was the general manager of the Lyceum Theatre working for Sir Henry Irving. Charles Dodgson is here because, incredibly, there are people who um, seem to think that uh, uh, dear old Lewis Carroll could be one of the um, uh, possible suspects. That was the amusing thing also to me when I began getting into the sort of ripperology of it all, finding over the years how people love it to be a famous person. They want it to be somebody famous. We're looking for somebody famous. It's rather like if ever you go, I, I've occasionally gone to uh, speak to spiritualists, and invariably, within minutes, they're introducing you to somebody really well-known. I mean, I've chatted with Winston Churchill, uh, Princess Diana, and Joan of Arc over the years. They never seem to bring you any sort of, any nobodies, do they? They want it to be somebody. So there's a kind of celebrity culture when it comes to Victorian murder. Uh, this can't be any old Joe Dokes doing this. Uh, it's got to be somebody famous. Uh, and then there's some courtiers who are very relevant to this. And then 
what, what I did find myself going quite quickly were to the Victorian lunatic asylums. Uh, and uh, there are two superintendents of the Surrey County and the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum who are, again, real people and there are interesting things to say about them. And I also discovered some interesting stuff through George R. Sims of how, having said that the police were thick, using that name, in fact, maybe they weren't so thick in that uh, certainly a couple of the suspects uh, named in the report uh, by McNaughton, were uh, put away by the police in lunatic asylums. There was not sufficient evidence to get them for the Whitechapel murders, but they were clearly disruptive people, and they did end up in lunatic asylums. Um, So then I obviously, I I, I basically am using the canonical five or six as my... Uh, chief uh, murder victims, um, and my the, my suspects uh, uh, include uh, some very f- well-known suspects and a couple of surprises. But you needn't um, think that McNaughton's suspects from my list are necessarily, uh, or any one of them, is necessarily the person who I eventually nail in the story uh, as my Jack the Ripper. Now, I've probably spoken in extenso, um, without a bit of hesitation and quite a lot of repetition. Uh, and certainly deviation is at the heart of it. Uh, but that's what Jack the Ripper is about. But really what I want to say to you is, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what I would like you to do, if, if you want to, is to uh, get the book. I will be proud to sign it for you. And I am not proud in the sense that I will put anything you like in it. If you want me to put uh, Patricia Cornwall, I'll sign that. Um, <laughs> I'm often asked to put J.K. Rowling. If that helps increase the value of the book, I will be happy to do that. But it is a work of fiction based on my interpretation of the facts. And what I hope you will do when you read it is think, well, it's quite intriguing, this, in its own way. Of course, he's got it wrong, but, you know, because we know this. But you might even, if you approach it with an open mind, you might think, well, you know, let's forget everything we knew before and see if this man is persuading us to follow the route. Um, and what I'd really now like to, uh, if anybody here has read it, who's got anything they want to say to me, what we're going to do now, I think, is spend five minutes with a few questions. Then, uh, when we have our little break, uh, Michelle, this is my child bride here, um, <laughs> we will walk among you so you may touch our garb. Uh, <laughs> we'll sign any books, we'll have another drink, then we'll have something to eat. But until everybody's had their book signed, are you hovering? Oh, you're hovering there for the questions. No, yeah. no, oh, I'm not. So I'm, I'm, I'm marvelous. <laughs> the moment I mentioned Scylla, I looked behind and I thought Ruby. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm only hovering to say 15 minute break. Because... Oh, now before we have the questions. But the joy is we're now to have a maximum 15 minute break. If anybody wants a book during that time, otherwise, when we return, we can ask questions and the conversation will become two way. And you will find when we get to the questions that I am as good as Oscar Wilde. I can listen as well as talk. Thank you very much indeed. Do you think we should just give Giles another really big oh, and oh, fantastic oh, talk? Thank you. Brilliant talk.
Well, can I thank you for the warmth of your welcome, the courtesy uh, that you have shown by buying the book, and also your generosity in helping raise some money for Great Ormond Street Hospital. The reason we chose that this year is that one of our, we have uh, three children and seven grandchildren, and our youngest grandchild has spent seven months in and out of Great Ormond Street this year. Oh, well, uh, happily, the, the, the forecast is good, um, but he's only, he was 18 months, now he's nearly two. Um, anyway, but so all, all, all looks well, um, but it's a, an amazing place, and many of you will have visited it. I know some of you have very close uh, ties with it indeed. So thank you for your generosity. Much appreciated. Now we'll take a few questions, and um, they can be comments. They don't need to be questions. You can ask them, you know, and it doesn't need to necessarily be focused on, on Whitechapel or the book. I'm ready to answer questions about my woolly jumpers as well. <laughs> And uh, the buffet will follow this Q&A. Yes. Uh, I, I'm a compare, so I can ask the first question. Oh. Right? Now, I've been asked this on behalf of Andrew. I'm starting to sound like Jeremy Corbyn, which I apologise for. And the, yeah. Question, yeah. the question is, do you like Doctor Who? Not only do I like Doctor Who, but my only claim to fame... Well, I have two claims to fame. One is I appeared briefly in an episode of The IT Crowd... So people of that generation queue around the block to meet me. And also, I have appeared in an audio version of a Doctor Who story. So sometimes I go to bookshops to sign my books. and There's a long queue. It's because they're selling the audio version of Doctor Who, and people come and collect uh, anyone's, any association with Doctor Who. So it's almost my greatest claim to fame. Uh, and I shall probably end my days at Doctor Who conventions, being somebody who briefly appeared on one audio once in 1972. I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Quickly over to Ruby, because you, you've got a question on behalf of Steve Stanley. Yes, one of our members who couldn't be here tonight, Steve Stanley. Oh, Steve. 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 <laughs> Steve, Steve asked me to ask you why you don't have notes at the back of your book. Oh. <laughs> notes at the back of the book well because my view is that you should include all the evidence in the book itself it's not a textbook it is a novel based on facts uh, and of course the George R. Sims archive which reveals all these secrets uh, is available to everybody to Steve as well he couldn't be bugged to turn up here so <laughs> not quite why we're bothering to answer his thing but if he cares to make his way to the unit he'd have learnt that the University of Manchester contains all this material. If he's a real student of the subject, you don't need notes. You can actually read between the lines. Oh, <laughs> notes, please. Charles, I'm over right. here now. Oh. Hi, Charles. Um, Hello, nice to meet you. Um, you mentioned um, Oscar Wilde had two children. Yes. Um, do you know if there are any descendants yes, alive I do. today and yes. whether they know about the history? Yes, they do. Uh, Oscar Wilde had two sons. Uh, one called Siddle uh, and one um, not called Siddle. What was the other? <laughs> Vivian, Vivian. They, the, name was, the family name was changed to Holland. And uh, Siddle died at the beginning of the Second World War. He wanted to, to show how robust and strong he was to sort of not carry the family uh, reputation with him and was among the first people to go over the front and be killed. Uh, Vivian uh, lived on to the 1950s. And uh, Vivian's son, Merlin Holland, is an, uh, a good friend of Michelle's and mine. And we are very blessed. He lives in France or with his wife. Uh, and we are very blessed that he actually reads and corrects the proofs of these books. 
Um, so, for example, with the first book, I had um, uh, Oscar Wilde drinking a mark of champagne that I thought he might... Uh, Dom Perignon. I had Oscar Wilde drinking Dom Perignon, and Merlin was able to point out to me that Dom Perignon didn't become... Though Dom Perignon existed for many hundreds of years, it didn't become the name of a mark of champagne until 1920s. Uh, and it was Perrier Jouette, that's the correct pronunciation, that was the champagne of choice of Oscar Wilde. So, yes, Merlin Holland, my sort of age, interestingly... And Merlin has got a son as well, Lucian. And uh, I asked Merlin once why he didn't change his name back from Holland to Wilde. And he said that um, you know his grandmother was of equal importance to him as his grandfather. And uh, she'd suffered a lot, and the family had chosen to change the name to Holland. So uh, he didn't feel that he wanted to reject his grandmother's decision. Okay, Tony Power. Thank you. Um, thanks a lot, Giles. Terrific talk tonight. And can I um, say terrific hat tonight <laughs> every night? You can't thank, go... Thank Tony you. the Hat is <laughs> thank how you we think very of it. much. I'm really looking forward to this book, and I think you've, 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 there's an awful lot of factual stuff in here as well. Mm. But my question is, did you ever think about writing a book, not a novel, but a factual story rather than a, a fictional story? Yeah, I've, I've written quite a lot of uh, non-fiction. I've written a biography of Dan, if you're interested in the Victorian period, of Dan Leno. Uh, and indeed, um, a very distinguished novelist uh, based his novel about Dan Leno uh, on, and acknowledges it on my biography called Dan Leno, The Funniest Man on Earth, which was an account of, it is an account of, of Dan Leno and the Victorian musical and pantomime. And I've also written a biography of Sir John Gilgood, the actor, uh, and uh, of the Queen of Prince Philip, and indeed somebody's got it here tonight, and, and Charles and Camilla. Uh, one of, in a sense, the, the, one of the reasons that the Jack the Ripper thing is so fascinating to us is that we don't know the answer. Uh, it's rather like a magic trick. I was a friend of Paul Daniels, and he revealed to me one of his greatest illusions, how it was performed. I'm, I won't share it with you. Um, but in a sense, the moment he revealed it to me, there was an overwhelming sense of disappointment once I realized how it was done, because it had seemed so extraordinary. And mystery is exciting. And I think I, I could have, with this George R. Sims archive and the connection with the wild, I could have written a book bringing all these characters in. And I thought, no, actually, if I write it as a novel, then people can read it. Every, almost everything in the book is factual, and I hope I evoke the characters correctly. Uh, and for me, it's more, it's more exciting. Um, and... What's interesting is I think that my novel is more accurate than Ms. Cornwall's uh, documentary. <laughs> Anybody else? Oh, okay. There's a beautiful lady standing at the back. How the Whitechapel Society could allow a lady to stand, I just don't know. Uh, it's, it's not related to Jack the Ripper. It's no. more about Oscar Wilde. I just wondered how influential you felt that Bosie was in Oscar Wilde's downfall and do you see any parallels with Kevin Spacey's situation and Oscar Wilde? Well, to answer the last question first, that's quite interesting. The reason Oscar Wilde was imprisoned was technically nothing to do with Lord Alfred Douglas at all. Uh, Lord Alfred Douglas, son of the Marquis of Queensbury, was a young man in his early 20s by the time of the trial. And uh, his father, the Marquis of Queensbury, was appalled by this and indeed wanted to see Oscar Wilde imprisoned. He felt he had corrupted his son. 
but uh, as a rule, uh, homosexuality, if discreetly carried on uh, between people of the same class, you didn't end up in prison. Uh, and Oscar Wilde was not imprisoned for his affair with Lord Alfred Douglas. Uh, Oscar Wilde was imprisoned because of being a man of 40, uh, wealthy, uh, a gentleman, and um, importuning uh, young people, uh, some of whom were 16 years of age at the time of the trial, so might have been 15 or even younger at the time of the alleged offences. So that was the reason that he was prosecuted. Um, why he chose to stay in the country when he could have escaped is a very interesting question. I think he thought maybe by then he was slightly high that he could get away with it all. Somehow it didn't... Um, so Lord Alfred Douglas uh, certainly was an influence on him, but it wasn't, uh, the, it wasn't the cause of his imprisonment. Lord Alfred Douglas liked to think he had a great effect on Wilde. Lord Alfred Douglas claimed to have written some of the best lines in The Importance of Being Earnest, for example. Um, and... Uh, uh, I think Wilde, towards the end, was ambivalent about uh, Lord Alfred Douglas. They did reunite after the briefly after he left prison. His wife, Constance Wilde, would have, uh, she, I think, did forgive, but she would have lived with Oscar Wilde again after his imprisonment had he agreed not to see Lord Alfred Douglas. But he, he couldn't resist the temptation, uh, so he did go on seeing him. But it's fascinating. And the, the six novels that I wrote before the Jack the Ripper book, uh, they are, in a sense, a serial biography of Oscar Wilde. And one of the tragedies of Wilde is that we see him through the prism of his downfall. Uh, in a way, you should see him, uh, as I was first introduced to him, because the first 40 years of his life were golden, glorious. Um, and he was, for several years, happily married. He was so proud of his children. He was a brilliant writer and raconteur, a novelist, writer of stories, a beautiful poet as well, and the author of these four uh, uh, great comedies, which are currently being revived at the Vaudeville Theatre. So if you want to know the story of Oscar Wilde, feel free to read all six books. It's about a, a, a million words, but you can get round to it. Okay, another question. Ed? Oscar Wilde was uh, sort of blackballed from being able to join the... I can't remember, it was Oxford or Cambridge Union, whichever one he went to. Do you know anything about, about that? Yes. Um, he went to Oxford. He was originally at Trinity College, Dublin. He was very clever, and he got a, a scholarship to Oxford. He was at Magdalen College, Oxford. He got a, a, a double first. He won every prize that was going for him. But there were people at Oxford who didn't like him. Uh, one of the dons referred to not liking the sway of his hips. Um, <laughs> which suggests that there was a, an awareness of his manner <coughs> as not being totally attractive. He was certainly brilliant enough to have become a don, to have taught at Oxford, but nobody wanted him to teach there, which is why he came to London and made himself famous in London. So there were people who had reservations about him. Uh, some, most people found him delightful, his company amazing. They said that a conversation with Oscar Wilde could cure the toothache. But there was a, a French uh, writer who described him as uh, the Lord Baron of the provincial halls, the Lord Baron of the suburbs, as though he were a touring version of Lord Baron and thought he was a bit of a crasher. So not everybody thought he was brilliant. And I think towards the end of his life, when he was drinking too much, he probably did become a bit of a bore. Shouldn't say that. Um, Great. Okay, moving on. 
It's Thank Little Dorrit who's come to speak to us. <laughs> little Dorrit. Oh, she's standing up. It's, it's, uh, it's Big Dorrit now. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Um, I presume you've read the book by Hesketh Pearson, mm. who said that he had to sing for his supper with the aristocracy. Yeah. Um, but my query is, if you say Bosey wasn't responsible for him, his downfall, well, but then if it hadn't have been for him taking Queensbury to court, that maybe course. the whole situation wouldn't have happened at all because yes. it, it was counterproductive because he found all the rent boys, produced the evidence, etc. Yeah. Would yeah. it have happened without Bosey? No. I don't think it would. No, 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 you're quite right. I mean, in a sense, Bosey is his nemesis. Uh, to, to sort of try and summarise that as briefly as possible, um, uh, Oscar Wilde fell completely for Lord Alfred Douglas. They consorted together in town. It was considered scandalous by many people. Um, the Marquis of Queensbury, who I think was a, a very strange man himself, uh, who uh, it was said that he, he beat his wives and his uh, dogs with equal vigour, um, was appalled at the idea of having a, a homosexual for a son and blamed Wilde. Though interestingly, when they met uh, at the Café Royal for lunch one day, Lord Alfred, um, the Marquis of Queensbury, was charmed by him. Uh, Wilde was driven to distraction by the Marquis of Queensbury's pursuit of him. And... Uh, when the Marquis of Queensbury provoked Wilde by leaving a card at the Albemarle Club, which was a club that Oscar Wilde was a member of, as was his wife, saying to Oscar Wilde, posing as a sodomite, there was a miswriting of a sodomite, Oscar Wilde felt obliged to take action. Uh, and indeed, you're completely correct. He provoked the first trial by taking the Marquis of Queensbury to court. If that had happened, uh, it had not happened, there might never have been uh, the... Yes, of course, you are correct. And it was because that trial failed that there was another trial where he, Oscar Wilde, was the person being arraigned. And you're also right, the Marquis of Queensbury was the person who sought out the Rent Boys and indeed helped fund the uh, prosecution of him. Um, I feel that the Marquis of Queensbury is one of the most maligned people Ooh. in history. Ooh. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of Oscar, and in fact, Constance Wilde is one of my heroines. However, having read Linda Stratman, yeah. I think you know that book, don't you? I do. Yes. Her book on the Marquis of Queensbury, I think that, you know, he was a much more sensitive person than has uh, been portray is portrayed typically, and also he wrote poetry himself. He had had dinner with um, Oscar, and they had got on really quite well, I think, uh, uh, at one point. Mm. And I, I think that he's really been done down. Very good. How marvellous. Well, that's good that there could be different points of view on this. Um, uh, there, there are several books about the Queensbury family, and there, is a, there are descendants of them still living today. David Queensbury is, is the current... Marquis of Queensbury, who is a well-known potter. Um, but yes, there are different views. Uh, dig, in, dig into all that. He certainly had a rough time. He, he, though, what is interesting to note is that um, you may... I'm not sure that you, you can be right that he was is such a maligned figure, because when his wife divorced him, it wasn't easy to get a divorce, but the divorce came through very quickly indeed, because his behaviour had been so bad. I... I I, I don't know about that. I know that he was um, honest, 
the, about um, his relationship with uh, his wife, and that he was an atheist, especially. And that was something that, was, uh, that he was very maligned for, but, it, but he was just being honest about his beliefs. Well, very good. I think one, for a future Whitechapel Society evening, maybe we could, you could have a trial of the Marquis of Queensbury. And uh, you, could, you could come as the prosecutor of the defence counsel, uh, and we'd have people, we have a jury of, of 12, well, it would have been then men, but men and women could be the jury. And you get different people to play the different roles, and the Marquis can turn up. Uh, I think it's a mar- I'd come and watch that. You could be the judge. Uh, oh, no, I, wouldn't, I don't think I could be impartial enough. <laughs> you mentioned Manuel McNaughton. His daughter, Christabel, wrote her autobiography, autobiography. Sorry, And when she grew up, she, her favourite human being in the world was Oscar Wilde. And reading the book, you get the idea that it was very friendly on Tide Street and she was almost in a pram. But the man she hated more than anybody else in the world was Lord Alfred Douglas because he got involved with some kind of correspondence and the police had to get involved. She hated Lord Douglas, she loved Oscar Wilde. And it's quite weird reading it because she is the daughter of the Commissioner of Police. And Oscar Wilde, by the time she... She was a bit artistic, you know what I mean. So, but by that time... Artistic is clearly a euphemism of some kind. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But that's okay. We're with you. I think this is all fascinating stuff. We're all artistic now. We're all mid-gender now, you know. Don't them, we're not interested in this binary world. We're actually, my wife says we're all confused now. She's absolutely right. I don't dare go into the, the loo these days in case I meet women in there. It's all very complicated. There's another thing about Oscar Wilde, which is that in the, the picture of Dorian Gray on the portrait, I'm not sure, um, he, he has a joke about people who get involved with charities in Whitechapel. But if you look through the Times Digital Archive, he visits George Yard, I think in late 1887 or early 1888, as part of a charity deal involving the Duchess of Tech and all yeah. kinds of knobs. Yeah. What is interesting about Wilde is one of the reasons I thought he was attractive as a detective, an amateur detective. I mean, in my version of it, he, as it were, is the Sherlock Holmes figure and Conan Doyle is the Watson figure, is that he is very brilliant, he is a poet, he can make that sort of leap of the imagination, but also he's a gentleman, which means that he can talk to anyone and can walk in through the front door. The, the, the policeman, the, uh, you know, the, the Sergeant Thicks of this world, would not have been able to go to the front door in Cadogan Square. They'd have had to go to the basement and uh, negotiate with the butler if they wanted to meet um, the people upstairs. So that was a great advantage that he had. Any more? Yes? Oh, good God. It's the most questions we've ever had, I think. Oh, well, just a couple. I'm trying to emulate just a minute by giving brief answers. You've already had two. Oh. One. Only had one. Um, I was it's so good of you to make it tonight because you could have been at that Acker Bilk lookalike competition. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask um, about the Duke of Clarence because um, ah. obviously in every film we ever see the yeah. real conspiracy. Did you come across that and what were your thoughts on it? My thought, you have to read the book. The Duke of Clarence, he's, he's, he is actually dead by the time I, uh, uh, the, my story is taking place. But he is key. What is key in this is his uh, forthcoming 30th birthday uh, and the possibility of new material being produced by the Sun newspaper at the time. 
to coincide with his 30th birthday. So the Duke of Clarence, who uh, I can reveal to you is not uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, the Duke of Clarence is certainly key to uh, part of the solution of this uh, in this book. So you'll, you'll learn more about him. And he is one of the reasons that I think Prince Harry, when uh, he gets married um, in May to the marvellous um, Meghan, whom we all now adore, uh, when that happens, uh, it's one of the reasons he won't become the Duke of Clarence. There are seven dukedoms available to the Queen, ones that are recreated um, by her. As you know, um, Prince Edward is going to become the Duke of Edinburgh on the death of the current Duke of Edinburgh, and um, Prince Harry could become the Duke of Clarence, but because of the last Duke of Clarence, almost certainly he won't. Okay, thank you for that. Um, yeah, thank you. we are. Anybody, anyone, was there a couple more? Yes? Um, thank you, Giles. Um, one of the more interesting things about uh, Oscar Wilde is De Profundis, which he wrote yeah. to, uh, to Bosey, and it's a fairly harsh tirade, well, not maybe not harsh, but it's a tirade against him, but I've never known what Bosey's reaction was to that. Yes, it is a tirade against him. Of course, it wasn't published uh, during his lifetime in extenso. Uh, and uh, it is a tirade. But what is interesting is that by the time Oscar Wilde emerges from prison, his views are already modified from what he wrote, as it were, in the passion of when he wrote it. And so he and uh, Bosey got together again quite quickly after his release from prison. Um, so Bose's view was that it was written in passion and in anger. There was just, I think, one more, just a couple um, more. Th there's one here, but yeah. do, we'll do three more, then we better move on. Uh, Giles, just a comment. We had uh, 40 of your books here for sale, and we've got 14 left. Oh. So uh, please come and see me for the last few, and so that Giles can sign them before he goes. Lovely. Okay. That's a, good, that's a good point. If you want me to sign any stock for you, I'm happy to do that uh, as I go. Thank you very much for buying the book. Thank you for reading the book. Uh, I, I always think a book is, is a proper friend to have. I love a proper book. The nice thing about a hardback, too. You know, this has got quite nice end papers, and you smell the page. Yes? Um, you mentioned that um, Oscar Wilde knew McNaughton based on... You, in your uh, talk, you said it based on the fact that he lived a couple of doors down. But then we heard, uh, yeah. is, it actually, is, that the, is there actual firm evidence they did actually know each other besides the um, yes, living nearby? There's lots of evidence from lots of different, uh, including the daughter's um, autobiography. Uh, yes, yes. The, the degree of intimacy is not known, though, um, beyond the, f the familiar story here. So we, we don't know how close they were. I've, I've supposed a certain... Not over-closeness, actually. Okay, Robert. <clears throat> yeah, just a serious question to end on. Do you think the two <clears throat> policemen who are currently smearing Damien Green have anything in common with Sergeant Thick? <laughs> well, no, to be honest, because I think Sergeant Thick uh, did his best in a world before forensic science. Uh, the police interviewed hundreds of people, followed up every lead that was possible, did their best. The fact they didn't come up with the answer is largely to do with, with what they were operating under. I did, in researching this, and you will all know about this, did quite a bit of work on the weather at the time. 
and the, the degree of the smog and the fog. It's amazing that they came up with as many witness statements as they did. Not surprising that they're so contradictory. So I think uh, Sergeant Thick and his colleagues, the men at the time, were doing their best. I think the, the difference in the present case is these are two retired people who have kept evidence, uh, quotes, as it were, under wraps that they copied privately to produce when they have chosen to do so. So I don't think there is any parallel at all. Let me just finally end, because I think that's it, because you're all going to eat, by making you feel that you've got something special if I have signed the book for you. Because um, I mentioned that I knew the grandson of Oscar Wilde. This means that I've shaken, as the, the, the DNA of the family has been rubbed <laughs> off on this hand. Better than that, uh, don't forget that I actually um, was a friend when I was 13 years of age of a man who was a friend of Oscar Wilde. So I've actually shaken the hand that shook the hand, uh, that shook the hand that wrote the importance of being earnest. Better than that, this is just a final persuader for those last 14 copies, uh, if, if I shake your hand and uh, sign the book with that hand, I also, among the many people I've been lucky enough to know in my life, was the real Christopher Robin Milne. Uh, as you know, in 1926... Uh, A.A. Milne wrote those Christopher Robin stories about Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh. Uh, And I knew the real Christopher Robin, who was a bookseller, died a few years ago. So when you shake my hand when I've signed your book, you will be shaking the hand that shook the hand that held the paw of Winnie the Pooh. Thank you very much indeed. And that was Giles Brandreth at the December 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I would like to thank Mr. Brandreth, Steve Ratty, Ruby Vitorino, Frog Moody, Sue Perry, and all of the members of the committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this presentation possible. Rippercast truly treasures its relationship with the Whitechapel Society and with it our ability to bring to you the talks from their bi-monthly meetings. So thank you to the Whitechapel Society again. If you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, to become a member, purchase books, subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, or look at upcoming speakers and events, please visit whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.